You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Hey, good morning, friends. I'm Brenna Rubio, the other pastor here at City Church of Long Beach. And today I have what is just, it's so much fun for me. Uh, My husband, Israel Rubio, who some of you know and others of you may be meeting uh, for the first time, uh, about once a year or so, he agrees to do the sermon with me. Uh, And it's, for us, it's like this almost like blast from the past sort of thing, because when we got married, forever ago, it feels like at this point, but it was like 18, almost 18 years ago, uh, we were actually working for a Christian ministry that planted ministries on college campuses. So we worked with college students all over LA and some of the campuses, we had about 15 between us um, and some we shared and we worked on those campuses together, others we did separately, but it was kind of an interesting way to start a marriage, right? Because like marriage is so much about partnership, but now this was like full life. It was like everything we did was together. Uh, it was really hard at times, and it was also really a lot of fun. Yeah, it was really fun at times, and we figured out a lot about uh, working together. So I always love it when uh, he agrees to preach with me on a Sunday morning, and you guys get to hear from him too and his unique perspectives now as somebody who works in the field of education instead. Um, so as we were getting ready to share this message together this morning, I started thinking about one of our um, adventures we had way back when, which was that there was a summer where we got to lead a group of college students to Mexico City, where we were gonna partner up with uh, another group that had a college ministry on the big campus there, UNAM. And so we were gonna spend, I don't know, six, eight weeks in Mexico City with this uh, group of college students. And there was a church organization that had like a a house that we were able to all live in together. They also housed some other organizations uh, that did faith-based work. And it was, it was a cool setup. Um, So one of my favorite memories of that trip to Mexico city was that there was a woman there. uh, Her, her office was based in that same space we were living in. And she invited us to bring our college kids and to come kind of have like a day where we learned about their organization. And they were doing just all sorts of cool stuff, like with microloans and farmers, kind of like empowering those who are at the margins. And so she said, hey, just come spend a day with us. We'll feed you, we'll teach you, we'll give you a tour. It'll be just an amazing experience. And Israel and I thought that sounded great. You had me at feed me. (laughs) Right? And then we got there and it was, it was like, an amazing day. Like I still remember one of the um, the teachings where this, this leader in the organization was talking mm. about uh, Genesis and the creation stories and how for him, like his sort of like moment of, of change and turning towards God was learning that God too was a campesino, was a farmer. And I just thought that was beautiful, right? And then I do remember the food because it was, it was delicious. It was sopa de fideo, which is one of my, Israel used to make it for me um, back when we were first married. It was like a comfort food. It's like pasta in a tomato sauce. And uh, it was just amazing. It was this amazing day of hospitality. So we get back to this house where we're staying. And the woman who'd invited us was kind of debriefing the day with us. How was it? We told her how awesome it was. And she almost started crying because what she said is that she had invited groups like ours. She'd been inviting them to come and to to experience a day like this for three years. 
and she'd never had anyone except. Because inevitably, what these groups like ours would say back is like, no, can't we come and do something? Can't we make some peanut butter sandwiches or something and, and feel like we're, we're contributing? We're, we're giving to you? And if they couldn't do that, they would say no. It sounded like a waste of time. So it's so interesting in our passage today and in so many scriptural passages, food and hunger is really connected with the idea of shalom, of a full bodied relational flourishing, justice and love and peace and wholeness just all wrapped up together. And when I think of this story and how these groups refuse to come unless they could be the ones giving the hospitality, unless they could be the ones in this, this subtle way in charge. It just reminds me that shalom and power have a really, really complicated relationship. Yeah, and so hi everyone, I'm Israel. Um, shalom and power have a really complicated relationship. And as Brenna said, I work in education. I'm an assistant principal at a high school. And before then I was a junior high assistant principal for uh, six years. Before that I was a history teacher. And in my experience in education, power and shalom and how people are uh, experience peace together, it's always at play in the work that I do. And so uh, that's kind of been in the forefront of, of my work uh, is how do we understand those power dynamics, whether it's between a student and a staff member, between an administrator and uh, a parent, and even and then we engage a lot with law enforcement uh, in, in the school in the school environment sometimes uh, when that's necessary. Um, and so how do all those power dynamics play out? We're very conscious and mindful of that uh, in, in our work uh, at the school level. But this summer, a lot of those power dynamics really started kicking around my head even more. Uh, and two things really brought that to mind. One was the Black Lives Matter protests occurring uh, over the summer. And then kind of parallel and along, alongside that, seeing at the same time, many people um, protesting and um, uh, standing and, and trying to uh, be against any kind of COVID measure for safety. And I see these two different responses to power and that how do people engage those two different responses as people have anti you know COVID measures and how they're engaging that and how people are striving and working for uh, justice uh, racial justice and, uh, and black lives matter movement and seeing the perception of how those two movements are playing out in the media um, that really just something was going on in my head and understanding how that relates to power. Uh, and then after uh, a message that I heard from, from Brenna and Bill in, in the fall, um, a lot of that came into relief and understanding that power dynamics are actually at play in our lives everywhere. And it's very hard to, uh, to avoid. Mm -hmm. That power dynamic exists and that desire for shalom exists everywhere. And what I thought about is if it exists everywhere, then it exists around me in my day-to-day -day life. And if it exists around me in my day-to-day -day life, I'm involved one way or another. And uh, if I'm involved, I've, I've got some responsibilities uh, wherever I'm at in whatever side I am in, this, in power struggles and power dynamics. And so that's what we're gonna be looking at today. Um, and so one of the things we wanna do is actually kind of understand what this idea of power means and how we're gonna be using it. 
So there's this quote um, from Dr. King that uh, that we've been we're going to be using as kind of our jumping off point today. So we have uh, this quote. I think we can throw it up on the in the chat, mm -hmm. and it says, "Properly pro power properly defined is understood uh, is nothing but the ability to change." to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, and economic change. Now, some of those aspects, when we look at political, social, and economic change, those are fairly obvious. When we look at economic power, people that have money and people that have not, that's actually fairly, fairly direct and we can kind of get and understand that. Political, mm -hmm. um, people who have the ability to enact uh, policies and, and different types of uh, laws and people who, who don't and who are affected by those laws. And so we see those, those at play. As I've been thinking about that, that really helped me kind of put together a model that uh, I want to show of how does that, how can we think about power? This no, is the I'm, educator in his whiteboards. <laughs> I am whiteboard, I'm a teacher at heart. And so I, I love whiteboards. Uh, and so what we got here is I started thinking through, sorry, Brian, I'm okay. out there, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm very excited about this. So uh, we can kind of start thinking of power in a couple different ways. One is people that have like low power and on a continuum on a spectrum, we have others that have more power. And along those lines, we, we can all kind of situate ourselves in different contexts and different situations. At the same time, we also have the spectrum of, are you either pursuing power, consolidating it, or are you looking to share it? And depending on whether you have power, you don't have power, and are you sharing it or you're not, you're actually going to fall into some different quadrants. Uh, and those shift around. But what you realize is wherever you are, in one way or another, you're wanting that shalom. Whether you're consolidating power, whether you're sharing it, whether you have a lot or have little, the, the goal and our desire is to find that shalom, to find that peace. And how we go about it is really going to determine uh, whether we really get there or not. And that's what we're going to look at uh, today is, is how does that how does that idea of power how does that fit in our pursuit of shalom so to launch us into that our friend Solene Zazueta is going to read scripture for us this morning and as she reads I just want you to remember again in scripture so often food hunger these really are metaphors they're stand-ins for the idea of shalom Solene thanks so much for reading hi good morning can you hear me? You're good. Okay, thanks. Um, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear to me, listen, that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know, you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Because of the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Selene. So when I first read that passage, uh, 
in preparing uh, with this with Brenda, the first thought that jumps to my mind, to my mind is what kind of God is this? <laughs> and like, I, I'm astounded. Any, if you, you know, you look at that time period when Isaiah is writing this, you have Greek mythology, Greek gods, you have um, local deities throughout the Middle East at that time. And it's hard to think of in any of those contexts, is there a God that's gonna tell you, come if you're thirsty, yeah. come and eat. Don't worry about money, I've got it covered. You know, uh, and I think Kevin dropped the quote in there. If you're thirsty, come and buy and eat. All these things that God, this God is just offering. And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of God is gonna just give away the store? I've never, I, it's hard for me even reading that passage, like, how is this even possible? What kind of, what kind of madness is this, you know, <laughs> God that would do this? Um, and then, you know, we think about it more and it, and it comes, the story comes to mind of, you know, Jesus is the kind of God that would do this. If we look at John 6, there's a story uh, where Jesus uh, is being followed around by this really big crowd of people. He's been doing some teaching and he's, being followed and uh, these people are hungry. They're hungry and it's uh, mealtime. And Jesus says, hey, how are we gonna feed these people? His disciples are at a loss. I don't know how to feed all these people. We have to work for six months. Um, and then in the midst of all that, this little boy comes, offers loaves and fish, his lunch. And Jesus miraculously is able to turn that into a really big meal for over 5,000 people. He's just giving it away. And at the end of that, these people have, uh, have shalom. There's this peace, this satisfaction because there's food left over. The idea of this food being left over means that there's satisfaction. There's some kind of shalom there that Jesus has provided. And he's the kind of God that's just giving it away. And that's, that's amazing. And so when I go back and I think about this grid of where this situation of Jesus and this idea of shalom and this Isaiah passage where does that fit in? We have someone with high power, that's Jesus, and he's sharing and he's giving it away. So right off the bat, we have someone with an amazing amount of power who's giving it. And not only that, we get this picture of a God that would give it away and for the, for the purpose, the sole purpose of providing peace for a large group of people this shalom yeah yeah and i think part of the reason like it's so hard for us to picture this right for us to wrap our heads around a guy who would act like this here i'm going to take your whiteboard oh, go for it. um is because it's so different from the ways that we usually do things you know uh my kids are really into lego these days like all about lego and over and over and over again, I find myself watching them as they start to squabble, right? As they start to fight over like one little piece. And I see them surrounded by like more Legos than any, you know, any four children could ever put together. And yet that one tiny little piece is having them like literally clawing each other. And I think, oh, this is so silly, right? Like this is my perspective, all the Legos you could imagine and yet so much fighting for this one little piece. And, and I think 
isn't that what God does with us sometimes? That's how I read him as we, we go into verse two in Isaiah, where he's talking to the people and he's saying, why are you spending money on what is not bread? What's not shalom? Why do you spend your labor on what doesn't satisfy? You know, Brene Brown, um, she actually, even though Israel came up with this in his very own head, she talks about some similar sorts of ideas. And, and this line, this kind of axis, thinking about people who pursue power because they want to consolidate it. She says, yeah, that's a, that's a particular orientation to the world. Power that is um, over and against others. And it comes from a particular perspective, which says there's not enough to go around. It says we live in a zero sum world where if you have, it means I don't and I can't. And so we all have to fight and we have to scrabble. There aren't enough Legos. And so we'll do whatever we have to do to get what we think we need. And if we have more, we want more. And we're gonna defend what we have to the death. And so what we see in this passage, there are people who have money, they have power, and they, um, they're gonna spend it on what is not shalom. These are the people who are just consolidating. This is the 1%, right? Who control so much more of the resources. But then there are also those who have to labor. They're laboring. And yet their labor is just because they want to be like these people. They're following the example. And so they're living in this space of self-preservation. Because it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And, and that's all that they can see to do. And you know what? The tricky part is, is that often those who up here are encouraging it. Those who already have the power want to stay in that system. You know, when we think about uh, the history of race in our country, that I think is one of the places where we can see this so clearly how these dynamics come about. Um, we are using some MLK quotes this weekend. Uh, it is MLK weekend, uh, but so often we wanna sanitize Martin Luther King Jr right? We want to make him about what will make us feel good. And no, he was, he was an insightful social critic, right? He was not just someone saying, hey, I want to make you feel good and give you some lofty and inspiring words. No, he was, he was so conscious of the power dynamics at work and how they worked against Shalom. And so he had to say this uh, at the end of the march from Selma to Montgomery in 1965. It may be said of the reconstruction era that the Southern aristocracy took the world, consolidated their power and gave the poor white man, Jim Crow, the system of laws that really established and enforced anti-blackness and segregation in the South and even beyond the South after the Civil War. He gave the poor white man Jim Crow. And when his wrinkled stomach cried out for the food that his empty pockets could not provide, he ate 
Jim Crow, a psychological bird that told him no matter how bad off he was, at least he was a white man, better than a black man. And he ate Jim Crow. And when his undernourished children cried out for the necessities that his low wages could not provide, he showed them the Jim Crow signs on the buses and in the stores, on the streets and in the public buildings. And his children too learned to feed upon Jim Crow, their last outpost of psychological oblivion. Do you hear it? Working for eating what is not bread, what is not shalom, convincing ourselves that it's enough just to scrabble for the scraps from the table of the oppressor, rather than to work and to believe that everybody gets bread, everybody belongs, to work for everyone's dignity. But so often, this is all we see. We grow up in these sorts of cycles of oppression and violence, and we don't know how to get free of them. We're not even sure another world, another alternative exists. And so we eat whatever our version of Jim Crow might be. And we try to feed it to others. And I just wonder where that resonates with you this morning. Where have you been accepting the crumbs instead of the goodness of bread? Where have you been willing to pass that damage on to others? We all do it in different ways because it's what we've been taught. It's what we know. And it's somewhat comforting that in a weird way that this is not a new problem. In the story with the disciples and having to deal with this large group to be fed, Jesus' disciples encountered the same challenges. It's very natural to us and an encounter and a difficulty because this is just the world, the broken world we're brought up in. When the disciples are asked by Jesus, hey, how are we gonna feed these people? What, what, do you, what do you think? One of the disciples' response is, Jesus, we're gonna have to work for six months just to give these people a bite. That self-preservation of he doesn't want to have to do it, to work all that time. He's trying to work in that self-preservation, this idea that there's a zero sum of resources to go around. He can't imagine a situation and a possibility where there can be peace for, and feeding for all those people. That vision, that ability to see past what's in front of you is so difficult and to see the dynamics that are really at play. But then in the story, the miraculous part that comes in isn't just the 5,000 people are fed. It's at this small boy with a small lunch, very little power. He says, you know what? I'm gonna give what I have. And this is a pursuit of shalom. And this is, I'm gonna put loaves and fish. Because what this young man, this child, does when we look at someone with low power, but still trying to share what they have, that's advocacy. Trying to bring about something to share with everyone else, seeing that there's hunger and a desire for shalom. And that's what the little boy brings in. And that in our lives, in, in everyday dynamics that we have, if we have low power, 
and but if we come in with that idea of advocacy to share it with others some pretty amazing things can happen um, so this year is my first year as an assistant as an assistant principal for high school in the past I was working a lot with junior high students but one of the things I've learned about high school students that has blown me away is something happens I think when they go from like eighth grade and ninth grade like their ability to advocate for each other and for themselves that capacity just kind of increases really well we had a situation back in the fall where a student was being bullied and there were some uh, racial elements uh to the bullying that was going on in social media so even though we're all in remote learning we're all in distance learning bullying is still going on in social media unfortunately but that a student came to us saying hey my friend's being bullied in this way and it's not right and i need you to do something about it, it came to administrators and what an amazing picture this friend she could have rounded up a mob of students online and tried to really go after this person saying the offended offensive remarks but instead she advocates she takes what little power she has as a student as a teenager and goes to an administrator to try to share what's going on and to share this power to advocate for her friend thankfully we were able to find out who was involved we found out what they said and there was some good restaurant restoration that happened, some restorative practices that we used to to bring to light what was going on. Um, but I was really blown away. That was one of the first opportunities I got to see a junior high level. They'd round up a bunch of friends and start threatening, you know, and try to get that person to uh, apologize in a, in a little bit more uh, inappropriate way. And I think that's when I think of junior high kids, not if you're a junior high kid and you're listening, no offense to you, this has just been my experience with junior high kids and social media, they would have used this, you know, pursuing and consolidating kind of mob violence. And it's always going to lead to violence, unfortunately, whether it's Jim Crow, whether it's students on social media, the sad part is, is that pursuing that consolidation of power is going to lead to violence. But how great in the story of the Feeding 5000, an example of advocacy and how it can be used to start bringing Shalom. Yeah, I love that. Um... You know, Brene Brown, as she tries to compare these two different categories. So if this is power that's over and against, where we're trying to hang on to it for our own purposes, when we start sharing it, now we're using power that is with and it's for. And one of the things that really strikes me is that to move to this place, it, it really does require a perspective shift and, and it really requires hope. I mean, for even the student that Israel's talking about to actually like have some sort of hope that someone will listen to me, someone will help. There may be some change if I raise my voice that there's no way to do it right without at least that, that little bit of hope. And so one of the questions that this whole passage, it raises for me is how do we, how do, we do that? How do we make the shift from the over and against orientation of power that is just, it's taught to us, it is fed to us in so many ways from our earliest years by the culture surrounding us. How do we shift from over and against a power that is selfish and, and working to consolidate to a model of power so that we can share it? Like, what does that look like? And I think the Isaiah passage gives us a clue. It's a small one, but 
but it's meaningful. In the end of verse two, it says, listen, listen to me and eat what is good. Eat it yourself. Experience it. Experience shalom. It's so hard for us to hope for what we have never, ever experienced, even, even a little bit, right? A taste of it. And in the John 6 story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, I mean, that's it. He, he kind of gets it. I don't see Jesus being angry at his disciples, right? He just says, watch and learn, kids, right? Like, it's just, have a seat first to all these people just literally sit and be fed taste and experience that there is enough for you and sometimes i think that may be enough of the invitation that we ourselves are are hungry and we're tired and we're in need and god may just say sit let me take care of you i'm going to send some folks with what you need you're going to experience my grace you're going to experience love. But other times, he actually says, taste and see by doing the work, right? The disciples, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. And yet Jesus sent them around to give out food. They didn't know where it was going to come from. But he actually included them in the work and said, you're going to go feed the people. Here you go. And here you go. We don't know where the food is coming from, but go give it out. Your hands need to be in motion so that you can see yourself, the good that can happen. There's this vision uh, when we believe that power is meant to be shared, that that is, that is the picture that somehow it is going to miraculously multiply, that we're not living in a zero-sum world, but we're somehow living in this reality where the more we share, the more there will be for everyone. There will still be enough for us. We don't have to defend the little or a lot that we have. We can share and, and it will be enough, but it takes hope. Um, you know, I think a really traditional reading of this story brings up a question which goes something like, are we really supposed to believe that miracles can happen? And I don't necessarily want to go super deep on that question, but just to say, yeah, do we believe that miracles can happen? Do we believe that shalom can actually be built? Wouldn't it feel miraculous in our current moment to feel like people and institutions could actually change? Would that not qualify <laughs> as basically a miracle? in this current moment that we are living in to really believe that things could change, that the world could move towards a more just and loving system. Rachel Held Evans, uh, who writes so many good things, put it this way, perhaps a better question than do I believe in miracles is, am I acting like I do? Am I including the people who are typically excluded? Am I feeding the hungry and caring for the sick? Am I holding the hands of the homeless and offering help to addicts? Am I behaving 
as though life is more than a meaningless, chaotic mess, that there is some order in the storm. I think that's the question for us today, Art. Are we willing to live as if we have some hope that things could change? Are we willing to live in the direction of shalom? As Israel and I were talking this week and I was, you know, sort of like, yeah, this is what I think I'm going to talk about here. He's like, yeah, because, you know, we're not actually asked to perform the miracle ourselves. We're just asked to show up. And that little bit that we have, give it. God's the one who does the miracles. God's the one who multiplies the power and makes there enough for all. It's amazing, right? I don't have to do any miracles. We just bring the lunch. Just bring your lunch. Come to share. And God can do an amazing, amazing thing. Um, and we, we see that. And the tricky part is, while we want to follow a God that is bringing us into the shared experience of power, it's going to take some work to break away from this old way of consolidating, pursuing power. Because after Jesus does this miracle, we see the response of the crowd. They've been in Shalom for a moment. They had a great meal. But what happens immediately afterwards? After the people saw the sign that Jesus had performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come, to, come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They were so close so close to getting it. But because they were living under an oppressive regime, they wanted to have some kind of force. Again, that cycle of violence comes when there's only consolidation. They wanted to force Jesus to become a king, to be this power over them, against Rome and over them. And Jesus said, no, that's not. He retreats because he knows there's still some more learning to be done. And we're going to continually learn the power, how it plays out in our lives over time. Right, we have to bring lunch, show up, participate, but over time we still are gonna be learning how this works out. In, in fact, it's gonna be so insane that we're not only sharing power, but it's gonna, as we learn and as we show up and share, people will be drawn to it. Isaiah mentions this, that as uh, God comes and feeds us and there's this presence of Shalom, nations are gonna come, nations are gonna join us. And it doesn't necessarily literally, it could literally mean other countries, but it means people that are different from you. You will summon mm -hmm. nations you know not, and nations that you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God. It's, a, it's not a zero-sum game. There's enough to go around. And in fact, there's this amazing thing where because we're experiencing shalom, because we're buying into Jesus's vision of we're not consolidating power, we're sharing it. this barrier between the have and the have not is gonna fade away. And what we instead discover is that Shalom creates this loop. People who don't have power show up and share. Christ, Jesus rewards that with Shalom and peace. People experience it and then go back to advocate and share again. And the cycle feeds upon itself. And people get drawn in, people want to join in. Because whether you have power or you don't, 
we're going to realize that this is a desire. It's so innate and it's so, uh, so central to us as human beings that we want to be a part of it. And that as a community at City Church and in, in our families, we want to experience that. And the key though is kind of showing up and giving what little power you have, advocating for others and joining into what Jesus is, is calling us to. Now here's where it gets tricky. <laughs> the rest of this wasn't tricky. That wasn't tricky. <laughs> that was just theory. That was all theory, right? It's a nice little model, it's great. And in my work as an assistant principal, it's actually not that difficult. And one of the cool parts of where I work is there's definitely a culture of sharing decision-making, including multiple stakeholders, um, giving voice to students. We're actually incentivized to do a lot of that stuff. So for me in the workplace, it's actually not, not that difficult to do. And it's actually quite, and one of the more enjoyable parts of my job. But I gotta be honest with you, I'm a Mexican-American father of four. And one of those four just turned into a teenager. And I've got to think now, how does this model affect how I approach power in my day-to-day -day life, especially with my children? Because I'm really hardwired for the high power consolidating control in my home and having kids do exactly what I say, especially the teenager. Um, but that really, even as a parent, as a partner with Brenna, I've got to make this shift and move. The cool part is in this dynamic, we're kind of finding ourselves in different places, whether it's family, work, neighborhood, the people that you engage with, uh, any number of ways. We're gonna find ourselves in different amounts of power, different experiences, but in the end, we're still gonna be called to the sharing and that's going to be challenging even for me. I've got to be honest. I've got to learn how to share and ad advocate with my children and to grow them into people who want to share in that shalom and to share in that, in that experience. Because if I, if I don't, like, I'm not really setting them up well, mm -hmm. right? And so I've got to think through that. That's really difficult. I'm not going to be honest with you because I'm used to this. <laughs> I'm used to this. This is easy. This feels easy. But I've got to start interpreting my interactions with the kids in this, in this scheme and how can I bring more shalom? Mm. And we're all gonna be called to do that in, in some form or another in our lives. That's not easy, it's gonna take practice. Um, but the cool part is it's not a zero sum game. There's enough to go around and we're here all for each other to experience that. Just uh, two thoughts just to close us with today. One, I just wanna celebrate with you as a community, all the ways that you have been showing up and you've been taking steps, um, bringing what you have, um, whether it is you know going to protests, uh, phone banking, calling, delivering groceries to people who've needed help in our neighborhood, um, our housing team that has been working so hard behind the scenes on the project we have developing to, to help partner with an organization called Family Promise and with a generous donor to actually create a home in the neighborhood. 
for some families who are currently in transition and, and need some time and space to, to get back on their feet in terms of housing. So a transitional housing project. And I just wanna celebrate with you guys. It's not 100% a done deal yet, um, but yesterday uh, a handful of us were able to go as we were having a house inspection. Uh, for a home just across the street from Lafayette Elementary School, uh, where we might soon be able to move in some families. And for me, that was that glimpse of Shalom that, man, I needed yesterday. A tangible look, see, taste. It's good. This is bread. This is the kingdom. This is more than enough Legos to go around. This is goodness. What does it look like for us to live into that in this coming week, in this coming month? Ah, oh, it's good stuff. Israel started us out with a, a snippet from um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about power. And the reason he wanted to talk about power is because sometimes people see it as a bad thing. It's all bad or it's all good. And, and he was saying, no, it's complicated. It's complicated in the ways we've been talking about today. And so just a last quote, really the finishing of that opening quote about power to send us off today. What is needed is a realization that power without love, power that hoards, is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, which is basically shalom. <laughs>